this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations on our review of the recent Paris-Nash meeting. In this one, Jorn Schottenberg reviews the first two sessions of the Paris-Nash meeting, which were rich in unique perspectives, some from non-medical or social science arenas, both about treating Nash patients and about getting a more detailed understanding of the disease itself. Paris-Nash is a uniquely powerful meeting for understanding advances in basic science and out-of-the-box thinking. Don't miss a word, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. First thing we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about Paris Nash Conference, which was this past week, as both Ewan and Stephen have noted. And this episode is not going up in nine days. It's going up literally on Wednesday. So we're trying to keep this current in that regard. Ewan, why don't you take the lead in walking us through session by session? Stephen will comment and I'll ask questions and we'll see how that goes. So why don't you kick us off? Yes. Well, thanks. I was impressed by the overall program, as I said. I have to say, Rune Sanyal and Lauren Serfati both did an amazing job to pull this together, to have interest for both persons, people meeting in place there, but also the people following online. And I think they mentioned something around four to 500 attendees, which I think is a big success for this particular meeting. The first session, which came on Thursday around noon, was epidemiology and public health. And the first speaker, actually Jeff Lazarus, which we had here, um, detailed some of the aspects we discussed on this podcast previously, the public health response, what is needed, how to do it, was a good uh, platform to recap that. I don't think we have to go into depth because we had a single episode about it, but it was just good to see him give this talk there and, and spread the word about this. And then that same session had two very interesting talks to me. The next one was given by Abhijit Banerjee. I think I might have said that wrong. He's a Nobel laureate from the US and a social science professor. And he talked about economic hypothesis and how these could be integrated into phase three clinical trials. This is something from the medicine field we're not particularly used to, but the social sciences do this regularly. They have a lot of confounders they have to control for. In general, it's not even close to what's RCT and medicine, but I just found it's interesting. I think this is one of the strengths of Paris Nash that you bring in different views and different science aspects here that could help us to expand the entire field a little bit. And the first session was actually finished up by Bimal Mishra from the US, likewise, and he discussed the paradigms of actually care delivery, which fit in well with Jeff in the beginning because they introduced some automated health system aspects that could also be integrated in the context of AI, namely telemedicine aspects, how do you link rural areas to a specialist clinic? We need a lot more of this if we want to target and treat NASH in the end, because right now, the way I see it, there's a lot of expert knowledge, but that expert knowledge is not existent everywhere where the people are, the patients are, and we really got to develop systems and ways to assess these areas, potentially also rural areas where there's no specialist. Ewan, did that talk cover anything about rural programs in India where I know the government is involved and I know Arun is involved and they're doing a ton of work? Yeah, they had this on later. There's another session. That was on the second day. Somebody from India actually came out. That was a panel discussion towards the end. And he detailed the, in the, in the Global Nash session number eight, Abhijit uh, Chowdhury from Indri actually joined and discussed what they do in, in rural India. And the fact that actually India is the first country that came up with a NFLD policy to be available to treat and identify these patients. So that was very interesting too. That was the end of the second day. Okay. Stephen, thoughts, comments, questions? Well, I showed up just a little late for 
for the first one. So I heard the last speaker of that section. Uh, he from VCU, right, Yorn? He's a hospitalist that Arun knows and that, that works there on the wards. And I thought his talk was very apropos, particularly from the perspective that I have in drug development for NASH, because one of the challenges we've had over the past two years is enrolling NASH clinical trials and getting patients to come to the clinic to screen, come back and be randomized, come back for their weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly visits, and then complete the study. And in our clinic, we do lots of telehealth visits, but we haven't really moved that over into the clinical trial space. So that's the next frontier. The next frontier is doing remote clinical trial site visits. There's nothing in GCP or the FDA regulations that would prevent that from occurring. It's totally reasonable to do, and we just need to do it. We need to organize as sponsors, as CROs, as sites, as coordinators, and get this done. So I walked away from the meeting and that talk with my own personal initiative to champion the development of a clinical trial paradigm where we can do home health visits. Patients would need to come in, I think, for screening and randomization and end of treatment, but every other visit could be done at the house. We would bring a phlebotomist, we would ship IP, we would assess AEs, and we would manage the patient completely in the comfort of their own home. And I think it's doable. I think it transcends liver disease and gets into every other aspect of clinical trial development for every other specialty. And it's time that it gets done. Amen to that. Good point, I see. And I can see how that really evolves and fits for some people. Now, I do think there is room for certain visits, maybe not all safety related, but I'm a little bit afraid that you're going to have more dropouts if the personal contact is lost. You know, it's, it's the same as we're not seeing each other in conferences where there's a little bit of a personal link. If you can overcome that by decreasing the number of travels to the study center, for sure, this will be a clear advantage for the patient. You have to figure out what the sweet spot is between in-person visits and at-home visits. I know when I'm calling patients and talking to them about clinical trials, and I'm in conversation with my sub-investigators who do this routinely, one of the biggest challenges is work schedules, whether or not we live in a COVID era or not. It's how do we work around work schedules? And this would actually increase clinical trial enrollment and maybe even increase participation all the way through and prevent dropouts. Paradoxically, because often when patients drop out, whether this is a real excuse or not, they say they just don't have time to continue to come in for their visits. Their schedule has gotten much busier. Life's taken a turn. Work has gotten much more busy. Whatever it is, if we could offer, hey, no worries. We'll come to the house when it's convenient for you. Even if that's on the weekend, maybe that makes it easier and more palatable to the patient to continue. And at the end of the day, that's good for the whole field. It's good for every field. Yeah. So Stephen, look, we know that customer experience is an important positive predictor for anything or any service anybody buys. There's no reason to think this would be different in that regard. You know, that the more hassle you can get out of it, the more positivity you can get into it, the better off 
if you are. I'm intrigued by Jorn's question and your answer, actually, which is there probably is a sweet spot that a couple of things might have to get done in person, although maybe on a much more flexible schedule. I'm kind of sad Louise isn't with us today since Todd was in, is in the business of putting fiber scans on trucks and taking them all over the UK. I'd be interested in her perspective as to whether, in fact, you could take something like FiberScan and make that the thing that you're always bringing to people in real time, given that it always isn't all that frequent. But it gives them feedback, it gives them human contact, or in some other way to just have a couple of events blended in the middle that, as you say, could be done on the weekend or aren't as time sensitive. Cool concept. Absolutely. I like it. I like it. So with that, why don't we move on to the second session? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go through all of them. The second two was in clinical aspects. So there was someone, Lee Nash, was a good talk by Monica Sakar talking about maternal nephilim pregnancy. And the one that I found most interesting in that session was actually by Jennifer Lynch from Sweden. They took the UK Biobank data and had the imaging phenotypes of these patients. The data was actually presented previously a little bit different at ASLD. This the study that we also discussed where they observed liver fat and intra-abdominal fat and looked at cardiovascular risk. And actually the highest risk category was low liver fat and high visceral fat. And now here they described uh, metabol phenotypes and their clinical implications again following up and building on that observation. And bottom line to me comes the idea and is what they described that again NASH does come in different flavors and not all patients are created equal. And there are certain subtypes that just using fiber scan or liver biopsy might not be well subsegmented. There's a lot of power in that imaging data. It's expensive and maybe not feasible for clinical trials, but in a research setting, this the more data we can get, it'll help us to subsegment the large NASH population. Potentially, we'll be able to identify phenotypes. Yeah, I think this is interesting because he published a paper this year in Liver International with Amelia Gustadelli and Ken Cousy looking at pyoglitazone and its effects on visceral adiposity. And what we know is that visceral fat is not good fat, right? There are two different depots of fat, subcutaneous fat, visceral fat. Subcutaneous fat, fine. You know, from a from a metabolic standpoint, sub-Q fat, not that big of a deal. May not look pretty, but it's not affecting overall metabolic health. Visceral fat, on the other hand, is highly metabolically active. It's linked to lipid and glucose metabolism. It's also linked to NASH severity and potentially non-hepatic cancers. And we now know that there are drugs that modulate that differently. We talked about pyoglitazone, and so you could transcend that to P-pargamas. But tesamorelin, which is a growth hormone releasing hormone analog that is announced that they're going into phase three in NASH, has a pretty big effect on visceral fat. And so there may be these phenotypic expressions of NASH that respond better to different mechanisms of action based on their fat phenotype, if you will. And to Jorn's point, not sure we're to the point where it's ready for prime time or ready to be in every clinic, but it sure brings up an interesting discussion. Does this explain potentially some of the variances in response to therapy that we see across the board? And when we get to the fibrosis section, I'll have more to say on that variance because Scott Friedman brought up some amazing points as well. You know what? That was so complete within its range that this is something that never happens, but I don't even have a question for you about that. I take that back. I do I do have I do have one, right? Yeah, yeah. You're usually pretty good about stuff. Which is sometimes you look at novel data or a novel way of looking at stuff and you say, yeah, in context, even if that point doesn't prove out 
there's an underlying truth to it that makes sense. And sometimes you take a look and say, hey, if that point doesn't prove out, it's, not, it's worthless. Is there an underlying truth here where even if the results of trial did not prove powerful, significant differences, you would say, well, there's an underlying fact here surrounding how we think about maybe something else we've learned about visceral fat or anything like that that would transcend simply what you could produce in a single set of studies? We're constantly learning about the pathogenesis of this disease and how it fits into the bigger picture of metabolic health in general. And to me, they're so inextricably linked. Liver fat, visceral fat, hepatocyte damage, hepatocellular inflammation, delayed cell activation, fibrosis. That story needs to be run to ground a bit more because there may be therapies that do a really good job of removing visceral fat that maybe we're not focused on in liver disease. I mentioned too, PPAR gammas and growth hormone, releasing hormone analogs, but maybe there are others out there that, that we're not really thinking about that may be applicable. That's interesting. Somebody, somebody, you know, go run a whole, whole bunch of research and see what you can find that might make sense. That's 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 an interesting idea, Stephen. And um, an awful lot of old drugs get second lives because somebody says something like that and it turns out that the answer lies therein. PO is not exactly new, for example, although it's not the only one that comes to mind. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or of the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 22nd, with another inspiring topic. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, stay safe, surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.